0: Welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz.
1: We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. How are you, Jewel? Well, you know, hanging in there. <laughs> for a second, I thought there was like teariness in your voice. We were like, I don't, well, you Thanks know. Thanks for actually asking. <laughs> 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 I just... She's bursting into just tears really over feel Skype. Like now is the time I want to share
0: my feelings.
1: <laughs> so yeah, this whole episode is just going to be a real therapy session. We're going to get it all out. I have so many listen-
0: unresolved issues with my mother.
1: <laughs> I mean, who doesn't? Am I right? Hey <laughs> <laughs> Don't need a podcast to tell you that. Uh, whoop, whoop. uh but anyway. This is, a, this is a lighthearted podcast where you're going to get some comedy, you're going to get some, some information, and you're not going to hear about either one of our issues, it's which true. is great. Uh, so today, um, speaking of unresolved issues, uh, my topic today is about poisons and toxins.
0: Now, you know, I love this topic.
1: Oh, it's, mm, you're going to love this. It's so good. And also, um, this is also going to, speaking of unresolved issues, it's going to tap into another thing that I didn't realize how much I truly, deeply feared until recently. Which is but being we'll talk poisoned? About, well, I mean, who who isn't afraid of being poisoned? <laughs> but in a very specific way. Okay. But we'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, first, we're going to talk about the difference between a poison and a toxin. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, oh, and I will give a shout out to my husband who deals with uh, p- poisonous and toxic materials all the time, apparently. He gave me a lot of info, and I'll be, like, shouting him out every I so often. I he but- was, like, a space guy. See, I don't know what he does. He does space sometimes, <laughs> I guess, and then other times he, like, flows toxic chemicals over silicon wafers. I have no idea. I don't know. I don't... I stopped... I mean he (laughs) he explains it to me well he explains it so patiently and so like well and lovingly and it's so nice and then it immediately just leaves my brain because I didn't get it to begin with so it's it's, it's very kind of him but I just don't know if I can really get it in the old brain box anyway so poisonous describes any substance mainly manufactured that is harmful or deadly to living cells even in small quantities so poisonous is like an umbrella term. Okay. Anything that can is harmful or deadly to living things. Toxic refers to poison that is produced naturally by living things, uh, but people often use toxic to describe any substance like that's harmful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So specifically, toxic is a poison that is produced by a living thing. Okay, and that could be like a snake with venom, or it can be like a bacteria. That produces Ooh, a okay. toxic substance that can co- make you sick or cause you to die. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the term toxic is very common, as you and I both know, especially in non-technical language. Um, my favorite is things that you can buy from Instagram that like te- claim to like flush the toxins from your body. Mm-hmm. Uh, turns out we have a liver for that; it's yep. built right in. We don't have to do anything you don't extra. Have to detox. Nope. So there is no need to listen to an influencer on Instagram with an absurdly large butt with a kid named Taylee. So don't worry about it. <laughs> you have a liver to flush out your toxins. Don't add anything else. Um, the term toxicity refers to the safety of a specific chemical or compound. The toxicity is usually defined by something called the LD50 or the um, lethal dose. LD is lethal dose 50. It's the amount of the chemical that causes 50% of the test population to die. Ooh. Yeah. We're going to talk about a couple of toxins and or poisons. Great. So first, let's talk about botulism. Oh, please. Yes. So botulism is a rare and potentially fatal illness caused by a toxin produced by the bacterium Clostridium botulitum, mm-hmm. which is an anaerobic bacterium. Uh, the disease begins with weakness, blurred vision, feeling tired, and trouble speaking. Uh, this may then be followed by weakness of the arms, chest muscles, and legs. Vomiting, swelling of the abdomen, and di- diarrhea may also occur. Uh, the disease not does not usually affect consciousness or cause a fever. So you get very like logy, which is a term that my mom uses often. But like you, you get like really like it looks like you're kind of unconscious, where you're just kind of like really logy. Um, but you aren't ever unconscious during this, or nor do you have a fever. So that's kind of like the creepy mm. part. Um, botulinum toxin is also one of the most powerful known toxins. About one microgram is lethal to humans when inhaled. That's insane. That's so small. Especially <laughs> so because
0: people voluntarily will get it injected into their faces.
1: Exactly. And we'll talk about that. So um, what it does is it... it ...acts by blocking nerve function, which causes paralysis. Mm -hmm. So advanced botulism can cause respiratory failure by paralyzing the muscles of the chest, and this can progress, as you can imagine, to respiratory arrest. So the bacterial spores, which cause it, are common in both soil and water. They produce the botulinum toxin when exposed to low oxygen levels in certain temperatures... And foodborne botulism happens when food containing the toxin is eaten. And this was a big thing with canning for a mm-hmm. long time. If food isn't properly canned, it's a hotbed for the growth of the Clostridium uh, botulitum. Yep. Uh, infant botulism, also referred to as floppy baby syndrome, uh, where babies just get super floppy, was first recognized in 1976 and is the most common form of botulism in the United States. Inf- yeah, Infants are susceptible to infant botulism In the first year of life With more than 90% of cases occurring In infants younger than 6 months uh, Infant botulism results from the ingestion Of the C. botulinum spores And subsequent colonization of the small intestine um, The growth of the spores Release botulinum toxin Which is then absorbed into the bloodstream And taken throughout the body Causing paralysis uh, Typical symptoms of infant botulism Include constipation, lethargy, weakness Difficulty feeding, and an altered cry So instead of like a whee- they're like a so so it's just like a is it rare uh no but i have good news don't worry um so the reason why it's called floppy baby syndrome is because it they don't get like fully paralyzed they have like flaccid paralysis so they just get like floppy it's very sad um Honey is a known dietary reservoir of C. botulinum spores and has been linked to infant botulism. And this is why honey is not recommended for babies less than one year of age. And I'm sure you've heard of that, like babies should not be eating honey. Um, Most infant cases of infant botulism, however, are thought to be caused by acquiring the spores from the natural environment. Because it's soil dwelling, many of these patients have been demonstrated to live near a construction site or an area of soil disturbance, like a big area of soil disturbance. Um, the good news is, infant botulism has no long-term side effects, um, but can be complicated by hospital-acquired infections. Um, basically, the the reason why it's babies under a year old are more susceptible to it is because they don't have the natural gut flora to like mm-hmm. fight it off. So after a year, they're like fine, and that's why they can have honey and they can like be around. I guess soil and that kind of thing, um, but it is it is not deadly. Like if you if your kid has floppy baby syndrome, they're going to be fine. Okay, most likely. Um, so we'll just we'll move on from that terrifying thought. Uh, botulinum toxin is also used to treat a number of disorders characterized by overactive muscle movement, including cerebral palsy, post-stroke or post-spinal cord injury, spasticity, spasms of the head and neck, eyelid, vagina, limbs, jaw, and vocal cords. And similarly, botulinum toxin is used to relax the clenching of muscles, including those of the esophagus, jaw, lower urinary tract, and bladder. Uh, botulinum toxin appears to be effective for refractory overactive bladder, so you have to pee a lot because your bladder like spasms, so uh-huh. you always have the feeling that you have to pee. Sometimes um, having Botox put in there helps. Wow. Uh, it's also used to treat disorders of hyperactive nerves, including excessive sweating, mm-hmm. neuropathic pain, and some allergy symptoms. In addition to these uses, botulinum toxin is being evaluated for use in treating chronic pain, which is interesting. Wow. Uh, studies also show that it may be injected into arthritic shoulder joints to reduce chronic pain and improve range of motion. And it's also being used off-label for pediatric patients with cerebral palsy and crossed eyes. Like, you ever see a baby with crossed eyes? It's called infantile esotropia. That's the official term for babies okay. with crossed eyes. Uh, Botox is a brand name, FYI. Um, injection of botulinum toxin into the muscles under facial wrinkles causes relaxation of those muscles, resulting in the smoothing of the overlying skin, as I'm sure you've heard. Um, Those pesky 11 lines between your eyebrows that everyone hates, that we all hate, those are called glabellar lines is the medical term. Um, It's interesting because, I mean, it seems to have like good uses, even though it's a terrible deadly toxin, because it uh, helps with like spasming muscles. So a lot of chronic pain where your, your body, for some reason, constantly tenses, it causes things to kind of like smooth out and relax and lasts for a very long time. So it's supposed to last like three to four months. So if you get like Botox put in your forehead, it's supposed to last like three to four months. Wow. Um. So, and my mom always said, uh, Botox is great for hyperhidrosis, which is that excessive sweating. Like a lot of businessmen get Botox in their hands because they have naturally sweaty hands. But um, she always said, if you stop the sweating in one place, the sweat has to go somewhere. So you just get sweatier in other parts of your body. That's kind of
0: really weird to think
1: about. Yeah, it's like weird to think about. Coming out your feet or something. <laughs> yeah, like every, anywhere, like, because it's you know, it's it's a waste product, right? Like, it has to come out. And so if you if you block the nerves that cause it in your hands or your armpits or wherever else, it has to come out somewhere else. So you're just going to notice it more prevalently in other areas of your body. So it's not, it's more of a, I guess like a stopgap as opposed to yeah like a solution. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's talk about mercury poisoning. Ooh, shall we? Yeah, let's. So, um, mercury, as you know, is a chemical element with the symbol HG, an atomic number of 80. Uh, it is commonly known as quicksilver and was formerly named hydrargyrum. I didn't know that. Uh, it is a heavy oh, silvery... Oh, you should have
0: listened to the misinformation episode on elements, shouldn't you have?
1: Oh, <gasps> <laughs> um yes please uh listen to the uh miss pod episode she's, i'm she's checking so real quick she's so scared <laughs> hold on i'm checking i'm checking the miss pod episode hold on i'm going to our Infopod pod tracking <laughs> no
0: it's too it's far elementary.
1: away it's elementary i know i'm going episode to the next 99 the page? maybe episode 99 good job <laughs> Um, don't forget to listen to our very good episode on Elements by Julia, episode 99. It's elementary. Which it's, I very it's very good. It's very good. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I know it's good. It's excellent. <laughs> Hydrodrum. <laughs> Please don't hurt me. Okay. Um, as Julia had mentioned before, it is a heavy silvery D-block element. Mercury is the only metallic element that is liquid at standard conditions for temperature and pressure. However, there are several kinds of mercury. Mm, okay. So elemental mercury, which I just described, is like the purest form of mercury. You mm-hmm. can find it in the ground, right? Uh, the one that causes the most trouble, which I'll describe in a bit, is called dimethyl mercury. Okay. Which uh, is a mercury with um, two methyl groups attached. Okay, so a methyl group or a methane is one carbon and two hydrogens. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, there is also a really terrible one called diethyl mercury which is a mercury with two ethyl group groups attached. So two carbons and five hydrogens. So four carbons and 10 hydrogens altogether. Okay. So dimethyl has two methanes, So two carbons and four hydrogens altogether. And diethyl is four carbons and 10 hydrogens altogether. So mm-hmm. these are like, like you think about chemistry class from high school, they're like attached okay. to the, the atom of mercury. So, um, when you get mercury poisoning, symptoms depend on the type, dose, method, and duration of exposure, and they may include muscle weakness, poor coordination, numbness in the hands and feet, skin rashes, anxiety, memory problems, trouble speaking, trouble hearing, or trouble seeing, which sounds horrifying. High-level exposure to methyl mercury is known as Minamata disease, which was first discovered in a town in Japan called Minamata. Okay. Uh, Methyl mercury exposure in children may result in acrodynia, which is pink disease, where the skin becomes pink and peels.
0: Ooh, Ooh. yeah, yeah,
1: it's boo, it's no good. Uh, long-term complications of uh, mercury poisoning includes pi- kidney problems and decreased intelligence. Ooh. So, do not give your kids m- mercury to play with.
0: There was an episode of I think it was nine one one Star this year oh, that no. somebody <laughs> was like somebody was a sandwich delivery person and he wanted to get (laughs) revenge because they never gave him tips. So he cracked open a vial of mercury like into their like big party sub. And uh, it had some devastating effects like immediately on this group of people. (laughs) Like, Like people started like jumping off of like the balcony oh my God. like it was really upsetting. it was, it was out an of upsetting episode and then they they brought everybody in to like figure out what was happening and then like somebody just happened to like catch a glimpse of the party sub and there was like a big like a, the biggest glob big of fake mercury <laughs> that you could have possibly
1: ever like
0: done as a as a tv prop and we were like oh
1: mercury you know what? <laughs> here's the thing here's the thing about julia that you all need to know she comes off like She's got she it's pink and roses everything's great she's got everything in order she's an archivist she just everything is happy everything's great she has a darkness inside of her and I'm going to tell you why because she watches 911 <laughs> <that, laughs> And it's that great, show. and that show is. I watch both nine one one. I know you do. You get it double the dose of like intense medical <laughs> because horrific. all
0: the casts are wonderful.
1: <laughs> no, I don't deny this at all. I'm sure it's still on TV. People love it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're, I'm sure you're not the only one. Mm-hmm. Oh, do I like look away sometimes? Well, Hell of course. Yeah. Hell yeah, I'm only like, human. <laughs> but you're still like, ooh, when's nine one one on this week? <laughs> I'm missing it right now for this podcast. Wow. So. That's, that's dedication. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm just saying like I'm ghoulish. I'm like the ghoulish one. Julie is a little ghoulish <laughs> too. I'm just saying she's a little ghoulish too. <laughs> don't let her trick you. Anyway. Yeah. Don't eat liquid mercury don't do in your it. party. Just so don't do it. Just check the sandwich yeah, before you put it your in your sandwich. mouth. It's all. Easy I'm peasy. peasy. It's, it's some nice advice. Exactly. Um, other common symptoms of mercury poisoning include peripheral neuropathy, presenting as itching, burning, pain, or even a sensation that resembles small insects crawling on or under the skin, mm-hmm. which is known as formication, Ooh. not to be confused with fornication. Right. Formic is
0: um, like
1: ants. Yes. So formication, mm-hmm. not fornication. Uh, skin discoloration, as I mentioned before, imagine- like... Patient
0: presents with a side effect of fornication.
1: Wait, what? <laughs> That's not a symptom. Uh, so you get pink. That's a good sign of, of mercury poisoning. You have like pink, pink cheeks. Skin. Yeah. Yeah. Fingertips and toes, swelling. And uh, as I mentioned before, peeling of the skin, which is called disquamination, which is a great Ooh. word. Disquamination. Oh, I'm sorry. Disquamation. Anyway, um, so how do you get mercury poisoning? The consumption of fish is by far the most significant source of ingestion-related mercury exposure in humans. Yep. Um, Although sometimes plants and livestock also contain mercury thanks to environmental concentrations. So like, you know, it's in the water or in eating other mercury-containing organisms. Mm. So, you know, fish and feed, that kind of thing. Um, exposure to mercury can occur from breathing contaminated air, from eating foods that have acquired mercury res- residues during processing, from exposure to mercury, vapor and mercury, amalgam dental restorations, uh-huh. and from improper use or disposal of mercury and mercury containing objects, for example, after spills of elemental mercury or improper disposal of fluorescent lamps. Mm-hmm. Um, all merc- all of these, except elemental liquid mercury, produce toxicity or death with less than a gram. So you don't need a lot of mercury to die. Um, So uh, human-generated sources such as coal-burning power plants emit about half the atmospheric mercury, with natural sources such as volcanoes responsible for the remainder. An estimated two-thirds of human-generated mercury comes from stationary combustion, mostly of coal. Um, Other important human-generated sources include gold production, non-ferrous metal production, cement production, waste disposal, human crematoria... Uh caustic soda production pig iron and steel production mercury production mostly for batteries and biomass burning so a ton of stuff oh we'll talk about hat making um by the way i should mention this this is in bold and italic and at two points uh, larger than everything else no scientific data supports the claim that mercury compounds and vaccine preservatives cause autism or its symptoms yeah Mercury compounds in vaccine preservatives do not cause autism or as symptoms. Vaccinate your children, everybody. Okay. History of mercury poisoning. Several Chinese emperors and other Chinese nobles are known or suspected to have died or have been sickened by mercury poisoning after alchemists administered them elixirs to promote health, longevity or immortality that contained either elemental mercury or more commonly cinnabar, which is the red form of mercury sulfide, like a solid mercury sulfide.
0: But wouldn't it be, like, wouldn't it be very cool if you were, like, somebody royal in the 16th <laughs> century and they gave you a cup of this, like, liquid, liquid metal? M- liquid metal?
1: Yeah. Like, hell yes, I'd drink that down. I'd be like, yes, this is definitely going to make me live forever. Look at it. I can see myself in this liquid. Hell yeah, I'm drinking it down. And then I would die. But, or become crazy, like the phrase, mad as a hatter is likely a reference to mercury poisoning among milliners, which is so-called mad hatter disease, uh, as mercury-based compounds were once used in the manufacture of felt hats in the 18th and 19th -hmm. century. Uh, The mad hatter character of Alice in Wonderland was, it is presumed, inspired by an eccentric furniture dealer named Theophilus Carter. Carter was not a victim of mad hatter disease per se, although Lewis Carroll would have been familiar with the phenomenon of dementia that occurred among hatters. Mm -hmm. So I guess this guy was just, just a big weirdo, Not because of mercury, and uh, Lewis Carroll just kind of picked up his kind of persona. Uh, For years, including in the early part of his presidency, Abraham Lincoln took a common medicine of his time called blue mass, which contains significant amounts of mercury. Yep, blue mass was used as a specific treatment for syphilis from at least the late 17th century to the early 18th century. He was getting some. Yeah, he was getting some, and he was definitely getting some mercury. Um, It was recommended as a remedy also for such widely varied complaints as tuberculosis, constipation, toothache, parasitic infestations, and the pains of childbirth. So basically anything you got shoved some blue mass in your mouth and it was supposed to make you feel better. Uh, Mercury for a while was also used as a skin lightener. And while it's illegal to use mercury in cosmetics, there are still some bootleg skin whiteners out there that include mercury. So buyer beware. Um, also, this, huh, this freaked me out. So Steve told me about this, and then I looked her up, and I was like, what? So on August 14th, 1996, Karen Wetterhahn, who is a chemistry professor who specialized in toxic metal exposure, was working at Dartmouth College, and she spilled a small amount of dimethyl mercury on her latex glove. She okay. was wearing gloves. Okay. She spilled a little bit on her gloves. She got it off. Oh, no. Great. She began experiencing the symptoms of mercury poisoning five months later. And despite aggressive chelation therapy, died a few months later from brain malfunction due to mercury intoxication. Steve says they use, they still use her story in their safety training at the lab. Oh my god! Like, don't be like Karen Wetterhahn, who knew better. Like she know, she knew. Like that was her whole thing. She specialized in toxic metal exposure, so she was already like a super careful person. And just one little slip, and it killed her.
0: And that's crazy she, that it that like five months later, you know, because yeah. you would think like, okay, like I took care of it. Like maybe I'll get checked out or something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're at your doctor like a couple weeks later, and they're like, oh yeah, you're fine.
1: And then, and then, and then you just slowly waste away. It's awful. It's awful. Um, by the way, chelation therapy, I'll mention this again in my next section, but chelation therapy is when they, um, you have something in your body, like a heavy metal or something that's like floating around in your bloodstream and is causing like a buildup toxicity. They administer like, um like an ion or a different like metal that actually bonds to the molecules of that. And like it flushes out of your system. So chelation therapy is like you add another ingredient to you in order to bond with the remainder of this like heavy metal or this toxic substance. And it flushes out of your system safely. Um, So they use that for um, a lot of poisoning things. If they're not purging Mm -hmm. you, you know what I mean? So, arsenic as julia mentioned before in episode 99 it's elementary it's very good arsenic is a chemical element with she a civil- did not remember any of this I think. <laughs> this, is, this is what this is overcompensation. No. no here's the thing i did remember that you did the episode i just wanted to like recap because it was it was this is the 150th episode
0: that's true. That would have been yeah. like a year ago.
1: Yeah, this was 51 episodes ago. So, so Oh my
0: God. I know, isn't what scary? What have we been
1: doing? I don't know. What are we doing? That's it. I just had to come to Jesus. No, I mean, what else am I doing? I'm stuck in the house. I just got Steve to stare at. I'm going to talk about arsenic. <laughs> are you sure you want this recorded? <laughs> no, you can take that out. All right, or not. Um, arsenic. Arsenic is a chemical element with the symbol AS and atomic number 33, as Julia mentioned before. It occurs in many minerals, usually in combination with sulfur and metals, but also as a pure elemental crystal. It is a metalloid, uh, and the primary use of arsenic is in alloys of lead, for example, in car batteries and ammunition. Um, It is a common N-type dopant in semiconductor electronic devices, and the optoelectronic compound gallium arsenide is the second most commonly used semiconductor after doped silicon.
0: I wouldn't have thought it
1: had anything to do with technology. Right? I thought it was just rat poison. (laughs) Right? Me too. But Steve uses gallium arsenide in the lab constantly, and I think it was part of a major part of his PhD thesis. Uh, You and I both went to his PhD. We went to his PhD (laughs) (laughs) defense we did, we did. And I think you and we
0: I... lost we lost it after like slide one yeah my my dissertation by doc <laughs> by Stephen Polly we were like yeah we're yeah. good and then like Great. by the
1: third slide we were like I don't I don't know what you know happening. what I did do you remember what I did I pulled out a notebook like uh, I was like, like oh I know what I'll do I'll take some <laughs> notes maybe I'll learn something today like an idiot. Like I was like, "Oh, you know what? I'm I, I'm a smart girl. I know what I'm doing. Here, I'm going to pull out my pen. Here's my little notebook. I'm going to follow along." And after the first slide, I was like, "Here we go. Gonna learn some stuff." And like as soon as he opened up his mouth to start, it was like we it we was got like a solar and <laughs> <laughs> it was like a loud whooshing sound in my ears. And he did so good. Like he did such a was, great job. All the sides oh, people such knew a good exactly job. what he was talking about. And he was so relaxed and like personable up there. Mm-hmm. He was like giving information. He was like walking around. He was just like so calm and I, that's all I remember about it because I didn't understand what he was saying we were just looking at we, we were looking for social
0: cues from everybody else we are like oh are they smiling are they like nodding appreciatively at this, at this <laughs> th- like mm, alright yeah oh you know what we should do we should put our ha- we
1: should put our chin on
0: our hands yep. mm. right now like we're Ooh. contemplating what this mm-hmm. diagram means
1: or mm-hmm. nod silently mm-hmm. oh yeah I, I think he made a joke at one and we, we both looked at each other we were like ha ha ha, ha. We're laughing too. I have never felt stupider in my whole life. (laughs) And I was like, and afterwards you and I were like, he's really smart. (laughs) (laughs) Not that I didn't believe it beforehand, Uh but we were both like, wow. I mean, this is really like hitting me in the face. Like he's actually really smart. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, he passed. He's a doctor now. Um, But yeah, he uses gallium arsenide and... Uh, with the reactor at work, and he he flows this gallium arsenide over silicon as a semiconductor when he makes solar cells. And this may this, that sentence I just said may be completely wrong. And I'm and if it is, he'll tell me. But <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's that's what he's said. in okay. the past. Anyway, so wow. it's used for it's gallium arsenide and I think indium arsenide. Ooh, now I'm entering into like. Like very dangerous territory, but I think those two are used pretty often, um, in semiconductors, mm-hmm. so um, it's Arsenic and its compounds are also used in the production of pesticides, as you mentioned before, treated wood products, herbicides, and insecticides. Mm -hmm. Um, These applications are declining due to the toxicity of arsenic and its compounds because it's super dangerous. Uh Uh, Trace quantities of arsenic are an essential dietary element in rats, hamsters, goats, chickens, and presumably other species. So they need arsenic to live. Wow. And no one knows why. Huh. Isn't that wild? Yeah, it is. <laughs> so symptoms, when you have when you are poisoned with arsenic, it begins with headaches, confusion, severe diarrhea, and drowsiness. As the poisoning develops, convulsions and changes in fingernail pigmentation called leukonychia striata, which are also known as Mies lines or Eldrick Mies lines may occur. So if you have different pigmentation in your fingernails, you might have arsenic. You may have
0: been poisoned at some point. Yes. Yeah, leuko is white.
1: Yes, so you have white lines Mm -hmm. in your fingernails. Um, When the poisoning becomes acute, symptoms may include diarrhea, vomiting, vomiting blood, blood in the urine, cramping muscles, hair loss, stomach pains, and more convulsions. The organs of the body that are usually affected by arsenic poisoning are the lungs, skin, kidneys, and liver. And the final result, as you could imagine, of arsenic poisoning is coma and then death.
0: Yes, so you hear yes. about it in a lot of like murder mystery novels and mm-hmm. a lot of like twenty twenty episodes that like yes the wife was like systematically like a couple just, of grains, yep, arsenic grains of arsenic on their dinner like mm-hmm. just a little bit of seasoning
1: yeah like
0: over time so that it builds up in your system because it's very hard for it to naturally um, yeah flow
1: out of mm-hmm. flush out of the system exactly so the buildup of arsenic is related to heart disease. Mm-hmm. Cancer, stroke, chronic lower respiratory diseases, and diabetes. So that's why it's kind of hard to tell if you're being slowly poisoned by arsenic because it looks like a lot of other things. Skin effects also can include skin cancer in the long term, but often prior to skin cancer are different skin lesions. So before you get skin cancer, you're going to have some evidence that there there's a problem with your skin. Uh, Other effects may include darkening of skin and a thickening of skin. And chronic exposure to arsenic is related to vitamin A deficiency, which is related to heart disease and also night blindness. So the acute minimal lethal dose of arsenic in adults is estimated to be 70 to 200 micrograms or one microgram per day.
0: So uh, one year in college, I had to read Madame Bovary in both French and English. Like I had to read it that in a humanities awful. class. And then I also yeah. had it for like French literature class. Um and honest to God, the only thing I remember about Madame Bovary is that she like you know she's oh she's very she's so tragic and fed up with her life that she decides she's going to commit suicide by ingesting arsenic. What she does though is she takes a handful of arsenic powder and just like. (sighs) like like flubs it in her face like it's graham cracker crumbs and then dies like the most painful
1: death over the course
0: of like a week um that awful
1: Flaubert really Flaubert didn't love ladies (laughs) oh boy yeah don't first of all don't kill yourselves don't kill yourselves anybody but also, do not choose arsenic. No, that's a real so bad, real so rough bad. way to go. She thought so she would,
0: rough. like, ingest this and then, like, put herself go to, to bed in her, like, mm-hmm. white, beautiful gown and arrange her curls on the pillow mm-hmm. and just, like, close her eyes. Close and, her beautiful and eyes. slowly nope. drift off. And it turns out that that's probably one of the worst, worst possible ways, things. Worst mm-hmm. and most painful ways to go. Exactly. Emma Bovary, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs>
1: Um, the most common source of arsenic is groundwater, since it occurs naturally there, and it has been found that rice is particularly susceptible to accumulation of arsenic from soil. Oh, I've heard uh, that. Yes. Uh, rice grown in the United States has an average 260 parts per billion of arsenic, according to a study. But U.S. arsenic intake remains far below the World Health Organization recommended limits. Hooray. Oh, Good. China has set a standard for arsenic limits in food, which is 150 parts per billion, as levels in rice exceed those in water in China. Um, In addition to its presence as a poison for centuries, arsenic was used medicinally. Uh, It has been used for over 2,400 years as part of a traditional Chinese medicine. And in the Western world, arsenic compounds such as salversan was used extensively to treat syphilis before penicillin was introduced. Man, the things they threw at people with syphilis. It's terrible. (sighs) Well, everyone had it. (laughs) I mean everybody God everybody had it Uh, It was eventually replaced As a therapeutic agent By sulfa drugs And then by other antibiotics Um, Arsenic was also an ingredient In many tonics Or patent medicines Mm -hmm. Uh, In addition During the Elizabethan era Some women used A mixture of vinegar Chalk and arsenic Applied topically To whiten their skin Also lead That was another one Uh, This use of arsenic Was intended to prevent Aging and creasing Of the skin But some arsenic Was inevitably absorbed Into the bloodstream As you can imagine During the Victorian era, or the late 19th century in the U.S., U.S. newspapers advertised arsenic complexion wafers that promised to remove facial blemishes such as moles and pimples. I saw an ad for Dr. Sims' arsenic complexion wafers, which looked horrible. It was like a before and after, like the before, she was so lumpy, and then afterwards she was glowing and pretty. She was also dead. I don't know what you were supposed to do with the wafers, like eat them, or like... (laughs) like apply them to your skin patch. Yeah. Like you like soak them in water and then like apply them to your skin. Either way, it's very bad for you. Do not use those. Um, Some pigments, most notably the popular emerald green, uh, also known under several other names was based on arsenic compounds and overexposure to these pigments was a frequent cause of accidental poisoning of artists and craftsmen. Mm -hmm. Emerald green is no longer used with arsenic by the way,
0: but that green is so beautiful.
1: Oh, it's so beautiful. It really is. Um, arsenic became a favored method for murder in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, particularly among ruling classes in Italy. Uh-huh. Oh, uh, oh, oh how the
0: Italians oh, love the we poison. We love to poison
1: our family. We love our family, but we love it to poison them. Uh, because the symptoms are similar to cholera, which was common at the time, as you can imagine, arsenic poisoning often went undetected. And by the 19th century, it had acquired the nickname "inheritance powder," uh, perhaps because the
0: Borgias they
1: loved oh, it. Oh, they loved it. Oh, they had like barrels of it, like cocaine, <laughs> like, like <the> co- cocaine <laughs> of the 1600s. 16th- <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it was called inheritance powder, perhaps because impatient heirs were known or suspected to use it to ensure or accelerate their inheritances. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was also a common murder technique in the 19th century in domestic violence situations, such as the case of Rebecca Copen, who attempted to poison her husband by putting arsenic in his coffee.
0: Oh, okay. Like a powder, like a non-dairy powdered
1: cream. Like a non-dairy powder. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the angel makers of Nagrayev. I have never heard about this, but it's, I was like, I need to talk about this. So in Hungary... Arsenic was used in an estimated 300 murders by the angel makers of Negrejev, who were a group of women living in the the village of Negrejev, Hungary, who between 1914 and 1929 poisoned to death an estimated 300 people. They were supplied arsenic and encouraged to use it for the purpose by a midwife or wise woman named Susanna Fazekas, who was wife of Julius Fazekas. In Hungarian society at the time, The future husband of a teenage bride was selected by her family, and she was forced to accept her parents' choice. Divorce was not allowed socially, even if the husband was an alcoholic or abusive. Mm -hmm. And during World War I, when able-bodied men were sent to fight for Austria-Hungary, rural Negreyev was an ideal location for holding allied prisoners of war. With POWs having limited freedom within the village, the women living there often had one or more foreign lovers while their husbands were away. When the men returned, many of them rejected their wives' affairs and wished to return to their previous way of life, creating a volatile situation. At the time, Fizekas began secretly persuading women who wished to escape the situation to poison their husbands using arsenic made by boiling flypaper and skimming off the le- lethal residue. Ooh. Um, after the initial killing of their husbands, some of the women went on to poison parents who would become a burden to them <laughs> or to get a hold of their inheritance. Others poisoned their lovers, some even, even their sons, as the midwife allegedly told the poisoners, quote, Why put up with them? Oh my god. Yeah, I know. <laughs>
0: what kind of state of mind do you have to be in? I know to just be like just
1: like ugh. Just, ugh, I'm so done. So the first poisoning in Negreyev took place in nineteen eleven, uh, but it was not the work of Mrs. Physakis. The deaths of other husbands, children, and family members soon followed, and the poisoning became a fad. A fad. And by the mid-1920s, Negreyev earned the nickname The Murder District. There was an estimated 45 to 50 murders over 18 years that Mrs. uh, like, facilitated while she lived in the district. She was the closest thing to a doctor that the village had, and her cousin was the clerk that filed all the death certificates allowing the murders to go undetected.
0: The shopkeeper was like, ah, you really need another... Another box of flypaper, Mrs. Jeez, you're really
1: going Jeez, th- <laughs> you're really going through this flypaper like crazy. Oh, so well. many
0: flies. <laughs>
1: <laughs> There's so many flies in, in grave. What can I say? Just give me the flypaper. Don't ask any questions or else you'll get it. <laughs> anyway, she got caught eventually. Um, I think it was like 24 people went to jail. Oh, and like 12 of them were sentenced to death, but only two people were actually executed. But it was like... It was like 15 years of them just oh my God just killing people left and right okay all right I'm gonna face this now so the last thing I have to talk about is radiation sickness this Julia I cannot you know how I hate the sea and I hate this and I hate the space <laughs> radiation freaks me out so mm-hmm. okay we'll talk about this hold on I was screaming at my computer. Like, Steve had to come downstairs and was like, what is happening? I was like, this is too much. But I still wrote about it because I, I feel like it's important and I'm providing a service and it's important for our listeners. I'm just trying to, like, work myself up. Okay. So, radiation sickness. So, you can be exposed to radiation through nuclear explosion or meltdown or from leaky medical equipment. So, that's the only way you can really get radiation sickness, which is good. Great. So those areas. Uh, Sieverts uh, measure radiation exposure both over time and all at once. Mm -hmm. So ionizing radiation is the stuff you have to worry about. It carries enough energy to detach electrons from atoms, basically breaking down the DNA of your cells. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is why significant radiation exposure causes full system breakdown and an extremely painful death. So ionizing radiation is made up of three particles. So Alpha particles, they're like the biggest ones. Mm -hmm. They can be ingested, but they just bounce off your body. They don't, like, they can't get in through your skin or anything like that. Beta particles are smaller, and they can be absorbed through the skin or be inhaled. But gamma rays are the ones you have to worry about. They are high energy. Yes, they are high energy rays that will fuck you up. Uh, Radiation, by the way, is everywhere all the time. It's called background radiation. Enjoy. Yeah, (laughs) enjoy. However... um, The amount of background radiation you will get at any one time in your entire life, like over the course of your entire lifetime, is 0.0036 Sieverts. So in comparison, to get a CT scan, you are exposed to 0.01 Sieverts. So again, it's not a lot. Mm -hmm. It can't really do a lot of damage to you. Between 3 to 10 Sieverts gives you a 50% chance of dying after 30 days. Yikes. Yikes. Yeah, this is after your hair falls out, you're racked with nausea, and you start to form scars beneath your skin. The worst thing is you start to see symptoms in the first few days, and then it goes away, and you seem like you're getting better. But in fact, you've entered a latency period where your body is slowly and literally breaking down behind the scenes. One of the first, and this like blew my mind, one of the first indications apparently of high energy radiation exposure is a sour taste in your mouth. Because the radiation is literally ionizing your taste buds. Ooh. So, uh-huh. so we were watching, and I gave up. And then we were watching Chernobyl. Okay. <laughs> and I was like, "Oh yeah, I'd love to learn about this because I don't know a lot about it." Mm-hmm. We watched the first episode, and afterwards, I was like, "I." At one point, I was like, "Oh, like I couldn't, I couldn't take it," because it was just the idea of. There is something in that we have in this world that we use all the time. I mean, not you and I, but we as humanity mm-hmm. use all the time. is so powerful and so damaging that just physically being near it will literally rip you apart on a ma- molecular level. That freaks me out so much that I cannot...
0: Sometimes I just have to not think about Right? Things. Yeah,
1: me too. Because otherwise I would just crawl into a little ball and on the floor of my bedroom in the dark. So it's okay. We're going to make it through you and I together through it. So needless to say, I only watched the first episode. Steve watched the whole thing. Um, I had to give up, but uh, good news. Uh, Acute radiation sickness is generally rare. (laughs) Uh, A single event, however, can affect a relatively large number of people. Notable cases occurred following the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the Chernobyl nuclear power plant disaster. Um, acute radiation syndrome or ARS differs from chronic radiation syndrome, which occurs following prolonged exposures to relatively low doses of radiation. Um, This is how you'd get cancer because the prolonged exposure just mutates your cells as opposed to completely breaking them down. So classically acute radiation syndrome is divided into three main presentations. Uh, hematopoietic gastrointestinal and neurological vascular so the speed of onset of symptoms is related to the radiation exposure with greater doses resulting in a shorter delay in symptom onset so the higher exposure and the closer you are to it the more these symptoms will come like one right after another or or will seem like they come all at once so these presentations presume a whole body exposure and many of them are markers that are not valid if the entire body has not been exposed but let's just imagine like this is a Chernobyl event Mm -hmm. Uh, amidopoietic This syndrome is marked by a drop in the number of blood cells Called aplastic anemia This may result in infections due to a low number of white blood cells Bleeding to, due to a lack of platelets And anemia due to too few blood, Red blood cells in the circulation And that's how Marie Curie died And that's how Marie Curie died, exactly Conventional trauma and burns resulting from a bomb blast Are complicated by the poor wound healing Caused by this syndrome, increasing mortality uh gastrointestinal the signs and symptoms of this form of radiation injury cause nausea vomiting loss of appetite uh and abdominal pain uh vomiting in this time frame is a marker for whole body exposure that are in the fatal range without exotic treatments such as bone marrow transplant death with this dose is common the death is generally more due to infection than gastrointestinal dysfunction Neurovascular. It presents with neurological symptoms such as dizziness, headache, or decreased level of consciousness occurring within minutes to a few hours and with an absence of vomiting. It is invariably fatal. So as, as soon as you get dizzy, headache, you're dead. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well. So watch out. Um, early symptoms include nausea and vomiting, headaches, fatigue, fever, and a short period of skin reddening. So you, you look like you're flushed or that you've wow. been burned. So I'm going to close... On a real happy note, and I'm being sarcastic, by the story of Albert Stevens. Okay. Albert Stevens is also known as patient Kale one He was a victim of human radiation experiment and survived the highest known accumulated radiation dose in any human. On May 14th, 1945, he was injected with 131 kilo becquerels of plutonium without his knowledge <gasps> or informed consent. Without his knowledge? Without his knowledge. So he was originally a house painter from Ohio who had settled in California in the 1920s with his wife. So he had checked into the University of California Hospital in San Francisco with a gastric ulcer that was misdiagnosed as terminal cancer. Okay. According to Earl Miller, who was the acting chief of radiology at the time, he was chosen for the study because, quote, he was doomed to die. Yeah. So his he was... Injected with this and so it started to like break down in his body and so he was get his body was basically giving him an annual basically dose of decaying radiation for the rest of his life. So his annual dose was hundred and twenty five percent the effective dose from standing directly next to the Chernobyl reactor core after meltdown for 10 minutes. What? So. Plutonium remained present in his body for the remainder of his life, the amount decaying slowly through radioactive decay and biological elimination. He died of heart disease some 20 years later, having accumulated an effective radiation dose of 64 Sieverts over that period, which is an average of three Sieverts per year.
0: So they were like, well, he's going to die anyway. Yep. Shoot him up with this stuff. Yeah. And then we'll like, happens. I wonder at what point was he like, Hey guys, <sighs> By the way, um,
1: what was that? So here's the thing: they they basically like. So they thought he had had stomach cancer, and apparently there was some I don't know. Either someone was like, mm, just like say that this is the case, or if they actually like, there was just a, a legit miscommunication. But apparently, his doctor said, "Oh yeah, I did like an endoscope and everything, and he has a huge." like mass in his stomach. Like he has stomach cancer. So we're going to do a surgery, but he's going to die. So they cut him open and they discovered that it was just an ulcer. And then they were like, "Uh, well, let's tell him that he had cancer because they had already injected him with plutonium. Oh my gosh. So he, for the rest of his life, he thought he was, and they kept like bringing him back and they were like, you can have free, Health care because if you <laughs> if you're part of the study about like stomach cancer mm-hmm. we'll give you free health care but you have to stay in the area and you have to come in every so often and
0: and don't mind us would- that we're just in like masks and gloves when we're <laughs> yeah. around you
1: and he and they asked him for like samples like samples of his mm. fecal matter and all this stuff and then they would have him leave the samples in his shed in the backyard and then they would go and pick them up because they didn't want to be near uh-huh. near enough to him. To be exposed to him for longer than they had to be. And it got to the point where his wife and his kids were like, there's definitely something wrong. Because his health started to deteriorate. Uh Like, he wasn't getting any better. Like, he was going to these doctors all the time. And even though they thought, like, he was living with cancer, he clearly wasn't doing any better. But they trusted their doctors. So the mastermind behind this human experiment with plutonium was a man named Dr. Joseph Gilbert Hamilton. He was a Manhattan project doctor in charge of the human experiments in California. So he had been experimenting on people, including himself since the 1930s at Berkeley, which is like some small comfort, I guess that he was also injecting himself. Um, he was working with other Manhattan project doctors to perform toxicity studies on plutonium. And it was Hamilton who had begun the 1944 tracer experiment on rats. Uh, The opportunity to select a human patient was relatively easy. Hamilton was not only a physicist assigned to UC Berkeley, he was professor of experimental medicine and radiology at UC San Francisco. Uh, Hamilton himself eventually succumbed to the radiation that he explored for most of his adult life. He died of leukemia at age 49. So, um, Albert Stevens actually lived way longer than they were expecting him to, although he had, like, they were doing scans of his bones and everything, and his, uh, and like his... Bone marrow was, like, liquid. Yeah. And, like, his his lumbar region, like, his whole spine Explicit- was starting to, like, collapse. Yeah, yeah like, collapse in on itself. Um, but he died of heart failure. I mean, obviously from, you know, the breakdown of plutonium in his body over the course of 20 years. But they had, his family had no idea. Oh, my gosh. Until long after he died. Yeah.
0: That's insane.
1: Isn't that so crazy? So, uh, I fear... uh I fear it more than anything Mm. in the whole wide world. Um, And again, like you, I try not to think too much about it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, um, Chernobyl was not for me, not for LT. (laughs) Uh, If you want to learn
0: more about uh, the Radium Girls or Marie Curie, you can go back all the way to episode nine, absolutely radiant of this podcast. It's very good. It's very good. I love talking about this stuff. Again, there was like a year and a half where all I read was like medical history and like how humans used to like accidentally poison themselves to death Oh yeah. and like the founding of the Food and Drug Administration and like it's
1: so it's so interesting. Like like I said, like I fear it, but also I I need to learn about it. It's like also super interesting. So, yeah, I agree. It's very interesting. So then you are just going to you're going to knock this quiz out of the park. Because my quiz today is called Cure Alls, Real and Imagined. Question number one. For thousands of years, medical practitioners clung to the belief that sickness was merely the result of a little bad blood. Bloodletting probably began with the ancient Sumerians and Egyptians, but it didn't become common practice until the time of the classical Greece and Rome. Influential physicians like Hippocrates and Galen... Maintain that the human body was filled with four basic substances or humors. Can you name them? Question number two. Apparently, this terrible drug was invented during an attempt to produce a drug similar to morphine, but less potent and less addictive. However, quite the opposite happened. It turned out to be around two times more potent than morphine itself and w- than morphine itself and was then prescribed to treat coughs and other ailments such as back pain and insomnia. From 1898 through 1910, these cough syrups were marketed as a non-addictive morphine substitute and quickly became the cause of one of the highest addiction rates among its users. What is this substance which might cause you to chase the dragon? Question number three. This term, whose definition is a solution or remedy for all difficulties or diseases, comes from the Greek and is not to be confused with a Paleozoic supercontinent. What is this term? Question number four. The aristocrats' plague protection of choice was this gross thing, a concretion formed in a goat's stomach. Paranoid monarchs kept them nearby in case of poisoning, and the less wealthy rented them, as they often cost several times their weight in gold. In fact, when conquistadors discovered them inside llamas, they became a justification for the continued colonization of the Americas. What is the name of this stony cure-all? Question number five. Many ancient scientists also looked for the cure to a common disease, poverty. Alchemy was the ancient forerunner to chemistry and was based on the supposed transformation of matter, i.e. turning base metals into gold. Therefore, the search was on for this object, also called the elixir of life, and was the central symbol of the mystical terminology of alchemy, symbolizing perfection at its finest, enlightenment, and heavenly bliss. Efforts to discover it were known as the magnum opus. What is the name of this object which any millennial familiar with a famous book series will know? Question number six. For centuries, doorknobs and other home fixtures have been made with this copper alloy, which, along with copper itself and other alloys, has natural disinfectant properties. What is this shiny gold-colored alloy? Question number seven. Humanity's oldest form of surgery is also one of its most gruesome. As far back as 7,000 years ago, civilizations around the world engaged in this, the practice of boring holes in the skull as a means of curing illnesses. What is this practice, which is still sort of done by neurosurgeons today, albeit much more safely? Question number eight. There has been a lot of time and energy spent on curing one of humanity's worst ills, the hangover. However, there has been some medical evidence to prove that this homeopathic treatment with a colloquial name has merit. What is this accessible hangover cure? Question number nine. Vin Mariani tonic was introduced in 1863 and was advertised both as wine and as a general cure-all product promising to treat whatever ailment you may have. The tonic quickly became a sensation and was widely endorsed, used among many famous people of the time, including the Pope and Thomas Edison, and even Queen Victoria reportedly enjoyed the occasional sip. The tonic even inspired the invention of Coca-Cola. What is the reason behind Vin Mariani's success? And finally, question number 10. Pittsburgh's own Ebenezer McBurney Byers was a wealthy American socialite, athlete, and industrialist. He won the 1906 U.S. Amateur in golf. However, he really earned his notoriety in the early 1930s when he died from multiple cancers after consuming a popular patent medicine made from what dissolved in water. We'll give you a minute to think about it, and we'll be right back with your answers. 10. It's closer than you think. Mm, okay. We'll, we'll go through. We'll go through. Mm-hmm. Okay. Question number one. For thousands of years, medical practitioners clung to the belief, belief that sickness was merely the result of a little bad blood. Uh, influential physicians like Hippocrates and Galen maintain that the human body was filled with what four basic substances or humors? Can you name them? Alright. You got blood. Yep. You got
0: bile. Yes. You got melancholy. Mm, no. That was the black humor. That's what the black humor was. It was melancholy. That's what they called it. Called it black bile. Yeah, the black humor is melancholy. Okay. I, I know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Go ahead. Um. And then what is the last one? Uh. Just
1: like saliva. I'll give it to you. So it's black bile, <laughs> yellow bile, blood, and phlegm. Phlegm. Mm-hmm. Yes. F- yes. So phlegmatic. phlegmatic. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, while it could easily result in accidental death from blood loss, phlebotomy endured as a common medical practice well into the 19th century. It was called phlebotomy originally because it was just bloodletting. Um, medieval doctors prescribed blood draining as a treatment for everything from a sore throat to the plague, and some barbers listed it as a service along with haircuts and shaves. The practice finally fell out of vogue after new research showed that it might be doing more harm than good. Hey! (laughs) Hey. Uh, But leeching and controlled bloodletting are still used today as treatments for certain rare illnesses. Okay, question number two. Apparently, this terrible drug was invented during an attempt to produce a drug similar to morphine but less potent and less addictive. However, quite the opposite happened. It turned out to be around two times more potent than morphine itself and was then prescribed to treat coughs and other ailments such as back pain and insomnia. From 1898 through 1910, these cough syrups were marketed as a non-addictive morphine substitute and quickly became the cause of one of the highest addiction rates among its users. What is this substance which might cause you to chase the dragon? Uh, that's heroin. Yes, it's heroin. And I don't have anything more to say about heroin because it's uh, yeah. It's terrible
0: I, I um, just recently started reading a book that is very long. Um, it's supposed to take me like 32 hours to read it. It's called Jeez. Pharma <laughs> Um Greed Lies in the Poisoning of America by Gerald Posner and it's very interesting and the only part that I'm in so far is where they are creating um heroin. heroin.
1: Oh, okay. So you yeah. are primed and ready for this question this right now. Yeah. But Perfect. um
0: really interesting about like the er- like all these pharma companies that we hear of now like Pfizer and Merck and, and Bayer and all these mm-hmm. different ones and how their origins and how they started out. And like some some companies really did want to help people. And then it turns out a lot of companies just really wanted to make money. Oh, so geez. um huh. Yeah. It's Isn't it, that a shame? It it it's gotten some really great reviews and it um I think it I think it'll be a really good, really interesting cool read. So yeah. yeah. Sorry, this was just right.
1: Right it's on the tip right of your tongue. Right there. Perfect. I'm so glad. Good. Yeah, that sounds like a cool cool book. Okay, question number three. This term, whose definition is a solution or remedy for all difficulties or diseases, comes from the Greek and is not to be confused with a Paleozoic supercontinent. What is this term?
0: Panagia? Panagia? <laughs>
1: It's a panacea. Panacea. Okay. Yeah, it, it comes from the Greek "panacea," meaning all healing, and was the name of the goddess of healing. Pangaea is the supercontinent, uh-huh. and I always get those confused. Uh- <laughs> so the G is like the globe, so ah. it's the supercontinent, and panacea is the other one. C is like the cure. The cure. Good. There we go. See, look, Great. we just made one up. Question number four. The aristocrats' plague protection of choice was this gross thing, a concretion formed in a goat's stomach. Paranoid monarchs kept them nearby in case of poisoning, and the less wealthy rented them, as they often cost several times their weight in gold. In fact, when conquistadors discovered them inside llamas, they became a justification for the continued colonization of the Americas. What is the name of this stony cure-all? It's a bezoar. Yes, it's a bezoar. Um, they're actually found in most ruminants' tummies, because, you know, the constant chewing and swallowing and chewing thing. Uh, Not to be confused with a bolus, which is the mass of food in the mouth made from chewing. Mm. Um, There are different kinds of uh, bezoars, which I will save you the trouble of describing because it's the Wikipedia page for bezoar is not pleasant. But there is something called a pharma bezoar, which is when uh, medication, pills, etc. form a concretion in a stomach, which is really gross. Um, it comes up in um one of the
0: Harry Potter books. Oh, which is that's I think why where a lot
1: of people well hear it. Heard about it. Well, I didn't. Uh anyway. <laughs> I only listened to the podcast episode about <laughs> Harry Potter that Julia did, which is episode number. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, I'll find it. Harry Potter. No, it's not that one. Hold on, maybe it's upset. It's-
0: one second. It might be in the third. episode 21 okay 20s wow
1: episode 21 harry potter and the non-potter heads it's very good it, <laughs> it taught me everything i know about harry potter because i don't know anything else oh wait i don't know what i'm doing here we go all right question number five many ancient scientists also looked for the cure to a common disease poverty Alchemy was the ancient forerunner to chemistry and was based on the supposed transformation of matter, i.e. turning base metals into gold. Therefore, the search was on for this object, also called the elixir of life, and was the central symbol of the mystical terminology of alchemy, symbolizing perfection at its finest, enlightenment and heavenly bliss. Efforts to discover it were known as the magnum opus. What is the name of this object, which any millennial familiar with a famous book series will know? The philosopher's stone. The philosopher's stone. Yes. Um, just as like a matter of grammar, it is philosophers' plural stone, not one singular philosopher. It is all the philosophers' all of them. stone. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most commonly mentioned properties are the ability to transmute base metals to gold or silver, and the ability to heal all forms of illness and prolong the life of any person who consumes a small part of the philosopher's stone diluted in wine. Other mentioned properties include creation of perpetually burning lamps, transmutation of common crystals into precious stones and diamonds, reviving of dead plants, creation of flexible or malleable glass, or the creation of a clone or homunculus. So anything you want, the Philosopher's Stone can deliver. Question number six. For centuries, doorknobs and other home fixtures have been made with this copper alloy, which, along with copper itself and other alloys, has natural disinfectant properties. What is this shiny gold-colored alloy? I'm very
0: bad at alloys. I like, I learn them and then immediately out, out my brain.
1: Uh, I'll just say brass. You are correct. Brass. Uh, the disinfectant property is called the oligodynamic effect, which is the antiseptic effect of metals, especially heavy metals that occurs even in low concentrations. Hmm. Other metals that have the oligodynamic effect is silver, Mm -hmm. which is often used in wound dressing and coating medical equipment, uh, along with silverware. Uh, the aforementioned copper, bronze, lead, zinc, and gold, among many others. But the idea is that the effect, this effect of like the way that the alloys kind of like work together is that bacteria can't survive on it. So bacteria dies within a few minutes. So for example, uh, bacteria will die on brass within like five minutes. Bacteria on stainless steel will last for weeks. So it makes sense that Like silverware would be made with real silver because it has a natural disinfectant property, which is kind of cool to think about. Question number seven, humanity's oldest form of surgery is also one of its most gruesome. As far back as 7,000 years ago, civilizations around the world engaged in this, the practice of boring holes in the skull as a means of curing illnesses. What is this practice, which is still sort of done by neurosurgeons today, albeit much more safely?
0: I think this is the very first episode of Sawbones, which is where the don't drill a hole in your head comes from. Mm -hmm. Um, It's called trepanation.
1: It is called trepanation. Um, Researchers can only speculate on how or why this grisly form of brain surgery first developed. A common theory holds that it may have been some form of tribal ritual or even a method for releasing evil spirits believed to possess the sick and mentally ill. Still, others argue that it was more conventional surgery used to treat epilepsy, headaches, abscesses, and blood clots. And trepan skulls found in Peru hint that it was also a common emergency treatment for cleaning out bone fragments left behind by skull fractures. And evidence shows that many of the patients survived the surgery. Uh, for more on that, definitely listen to Sawbones. It's a great, it's a great show. Definitely. Dr. Sidney McElroy is uh, wonderful. Question number eight. Uh, there has been a lot of time and energy spent on curing one of humanity's worst ills, the hangover. However, there have been some medical evidence to prove that this homeopathic treatment with a colloquial name has merit. What is this accessible hangover cure? Is it the hair of the dog, Lauren? It is the hair of the dog, <laughs> so for those who don't know, hair of the dog just means uh hair of the dog that bit you, so you drink more alcohol to like cure your hangover um in fact, it doesn't really cure it. it just delays it. yeah, you're just uh, still drunk now now you're, you're just drunk still again, drunk. yeah. Well, basically what happens is you get hangover symptoms from your body metabolizing the methanol in your system to formaldehyde Uh, And drinking more raises that level again and delays that metabolizing process. Uh, But you're going to have to deal with it eventually, though, so just eat that cheeseburger and a big glass of water and sleep it off. Um, My former roommate, Kayla, who was the best roommate I ever had, she always swore by after a night of drinking. Before she went to bed, she would drink a big glass of water and a peanut butter sandwich, and she said she never had a hangover. A peanut butter sandwich. Yeah, How about she was that? like, you get you get the sugar, you get the protein, you uh-huh. get the carbs from the bread. It's delicious because you're probably hungry, and then you drink a big glass of water to hydrate yourself. That's so keep advice. that in mind, everybody. Try that no, out. She
0: was great. I know a lot of people that um, swear by a a Coca Cola from McDonald's. Oh, yeah, because they have that special mix. They have, like, the best fountain Coke, mm-hmm. apparently, or something. So yeah. if you get, like, mm-hmm. a, a sausage, egg, and cheese biscuit and, a, like, a Coca-Cola from the fountain. That's, like, supposed that's, to. That's
1: that's it. That's the thing that helps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think there was, I think it was New York Times or New York Magazine. They had a, a long form article about, like, why have we not been able to actually cure a hangover yet? Like, all this, like, apparently there's been a lot of, <laughs> there's been a lot of, like, research done of, like, why haven't we been able to cure a hangover? Um, Steve's go-to is canned oxygen. You can buy it on Amazon. Oh,
0: yes, you know, as we all
1: just have hanging out in the pantry. <laughs> well, I do now. You do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, don't worry. We'll toss you a couple bottles. Um, apparently, like, marathon runners use it to, like, help, like, quick get, like, mm-hmm. oxygen in your lungs so you're not out of breath. Um, but what it does is it like oxygen, like immediately goes into your brain and it helps with the headache. It helps with like just headaches too, not Mm -hmm. just hangovers. Um, and it does work. Like I've definitely tested it and my hangover, my, not my hangover, but my headache, like gone. It's amazing. It's actually kind of creepy. All right. Question number nine. Vin Mariani tonic was introduced in 1863 and was advertised as both a wine and as a general cure-all product promising to treat whatever ailment you may have. The tonic quickly became a sensation and was widely endorsed, used among many famous people of the time, including the Pope and Thomas Edison, and even Queen Victoria reportedly enjoyed the occasional sip. The tonic even inspired the invention of Coca-Cola. What is the reason behind Vin Mariani's success? Did it have cocaine in it? Oh, yes, it had cocaine in it. Uh, the drink contained about six milligrams of cocaine per fluid ounce of wine, Ooh. which is, I would make the argument, too much cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> That's too much cocaine in your wine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And finally, question number 10. Pittsburgh's own Ebenezer McBurney Byers was a wealthy American socialite, athlete, and industrialist. He won the 1906 U.S. amateur in golf. However, he really earned his notoriety in the early 1930s when he died from multiple cancers after consuming a popular patent medicine made from what dissolved in water. I don't have a single clue.
0: What do Pittsburghers like? <laughs> Ketchup. Sure. French fries on things. Yeah, hell yeah. Coors <laughs> Coors light. I see lights. Um Football, a football yeah. dissolved in water.
1: Um, <laughs> Could you imagine? Don't drink football, guys. <laughs> I, uh, I'll just say spiders. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds awful. It almost sounds worse than the tr- than the answer. Uh, the answer is radium. Uh, okay. So. Uh, the patent medicine was called Radithor. Uh, okay. Uh, it was a patent medicine manufactured by William J.A. Bailey. Bailey was a Harvard University dropout who falsely claimed to be a doctor of medicine and had become rich from the sale of Radithor, which was a solution of radium and water, which he claimed stimulated the endocrine system. Oh. mm-hmm. He also offered physicians a one-sixth kickback On each dose prescribed <laughs> uh, Byers began taking Several doses of Radithor per day Believing it gave him a toned up feeling mm. uh, But he stopped In October 1930 after taking Some 1,400 doses Oh my god uh, And the reason why he stopped taking it Was because the effect faded He didn't feel that toned up feeling anymore It wasn't that his like life was like falling apart It was because he was like, man, it doesn't taste that good anymore Uh, Turns out he lost weight, he had headaches, and his teeth began to fall out. Mm -hmm. In 1931, the Federal Trade Commission asked him to testify about his experience, but he was too sick to travel, so the commission sent a lawyer to take a statement at his home. The lawyer reported that Byer's, quote, whole upper jaw, excepting the two front teeth and most of his lower jaw, had been removed, and that, quote, all the remaining bone tissue of his body was disintegrating Mm -hmm. and holes were actually Mm -hmm. forming in his skull. His death on March 31st, 1932 was attributed to radiation poisoning using the terminology of the time, but it was due to cancers, mm-hmm. not acute radiation syndrome. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is buried in Allegheny Cemetery in Pittsburgh in a lead-lined coffin. <sighs> How about that? Yeah. Yeah, like with the radium
0: girls, what radium poisoning does to you is mm-hmm. um, like where you would normally have calcium in your bones, instead the radium leaches onto that and then it mm-hmm. eats through your bones
1: yeah you know it's a, like
0: super normal stuff
1: yeah it's a terrible way to go um where is your episode on that
0: I'm looking uh, for it. number nine
1: number nine okay i'm a little too early on this yeah yeah definitely listen to absolutely radiant marie curie number nine it's very good uh i did not mean to make as many references to julia only episodes but you know what this is is a collaboration it happens sometimes it happens sometimes um so (laughs) so yeah so that was my episode on poisons and there's so many more like I could just we could both just keep doing poisons until you know the bitter end so
0: until the very bitter end
1: (laughs) if you have some cyanide you know what I mean yeah if you have some cyanide yeah if we accidentally poison ourselves eventually or radiation poisoning or whatever anyway we're all doing okay wow (laughs) (laughs) Just think it could be worse. You could have been drinking ratathor uh over the course of your lifetime and your bones literally turned to dust.
0: Oh, on that note. Thanks for listening, you guys. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, thanks so much for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Tell a friend. Tell a friend. We appreciate it. Everybody has left um nice comments so far. It's very you're very kind. Anybody that's yes. donated any any money to our tip jar, thank you so much. You guys are the best. We love, yeah. Um, we love getting hearing from you on Twitter and, and email and everything like that. And so, yeah.
1: please feel free to to give us some listener submitted trivia. We haven't had some in a, in a minute, yeah. I think. So yeah, send us along your listener submitted trivia. <laughs> so uh, thanks so much for listening, you guys. Yeah,
0: we will see you next time. Goodbye.